want to try to capture in our study today. Uh, I was wanting to move away from chapter three, but it's just some some things that's been sticking in my head. I'm in first Corinthians chapter three. I want us to look briefly again at um, at the apostles uh, description of the ministry between him and Apollos. I'm going to start at verse five, go through verse nine and remind us once again of the phrasing in verse 16. And I'll probably go through verse uh, 18 and then pick up on what I see. Verse five through nine of first Corinthians three. Um, who then is, a, is Paul and who is Apollos? Now, these are two people. I want you to keep that in mind. But ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. So it's very important for us to hear what the apostle is saying by that. He says, I have planted and Apollos has watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. If we were working through those verses right there, we would talk about how the two actually became three. And the third person in this trifecta is more important than the first two. Could you see that in those verses? If you were reading with me, could you see how that Paul spoke of himself and then of Apollos? And then he said that our purpose is to be used by God for everyone that is going to believe. And then he says, now I'm sowing and Apollos is watering, but God is the one giving the increase. And then he repeats it again in verse seven. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that gives the increase. So if I were working that through numerically to actually frame a kind of thought here, two, two are being employed for us in the Bible. That's the number of witness. He sent them out two by two. That's going to be important here as we talk things through. He sent them out two by two. And in sending them out two by two, what the apostle does is he says, but the magic is not in us. The magic is in God who gives the increase. Did you get that? It's really important because what he does is he's actually addressing uh, the ministry that's taking place in Corinth by other men. And what he's doing is now engaging in self-abdication of himself and Apollos, which is really an important strategy here. Because the church at Corinth is caught up in the idolatry of men. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Paul. I am of this man, that man, that person, that woman. Because this is what's going on. And so immediately what Paul is doing is saying two things. One is... God do, does use men. He uses us. But then secondly, he says, but we're actually nothing. Did you hear it? We're actually nothing. That's what verse seven is saying. So then neither is he that planteth anything. Neither he that watereth. So immediately he negates him and Apollos as being central to the focus and the aspirations of the people at Corinth. He immediately abdicates who he is. Now he says God uses us. We saw that in verse six, didn't we? Right? 
I sow, Apollos waters, God gives the increase. What that means is God approves of what they do. That's important. That's what we call a trifecta in horse racing. One, two, three equals win. But the win is based upon the number three, not the number two, nor the number one. The number two and the number one mean nothing without the number. Right. And what Paul is doing now is creating the hierarchy that we're going to see in Ephesians four, for which if the church inverts the hierarchy, which is what's going on in my world, putting God underneath and man on top, then the church is going to necessarily collapse. And when you and I make more of men than we ought, then we make less of God than we should. And when you make less of God than you should, then you're setting yourself up for deconstruction. All right. This is kind of what Paul is dealing with here. So he says, so then neither is he that planted anything, neither he that waters, but God that gives the increase. And you can see here with all that you and I have talked about a while back now from chapter one to chapter two to chapter three, that what Paul is wanting the Corinthians to do is have a right perspective on the people that God uses to bless them. He wants them to have the right perspective on instrumentality, instruments. Like you guys are keeping up with me in our study in the Exodus account, right? Moses is a cool dude, isn't he? Right. And, you know, we, we're going to we're going to admire him a little bit more by the time we get to Deuteronomy 31, because he's going to have to hang out with these crazy people for 40 years. And, and, and that that is remarkable to pastor a flock for 40 years where half the time they want to kill him. Right. This is why the Bible says that Moses, apart from Christ, was one of the meekest men on the planet. So what I'm getting ready to build here inside your thinking and mind is how important it is for us to know what we are and what we are not. How important it is for us to know what we are and what we are not. And, and I, I didn't build it. I'm going to share with you this vision up here. This is this is a biblical vision. It might look worse than a cartoon for some of you, but it's a biblical vision. And if you knew your Bible, you would know that I'm conflating two visions. You would be able to see the vision, but I'm going to help you in a minute. See it. Um, the, and, and I believe it's what the apostle is talking about here. And it has to do with being thankful to be an instrument, but making sure that we don't tell men and women that we're more than an instrument. We are not the essential and efficacious cause of any good for anyone. Now, we can help hurt you really bad. Like I can give you a cold. I can give you COVID, but I can't give you salvation. Right. And you notice you and I can't give good things, but we can give bad things. But God can give good things through us. Right. So keeping things in perspective is so important in the world in which I live wherein the real is being made to be the unreal and the unreal is being made to be the real. And that's a term I'm going to be drilling for the next six or seven months <clears throat> because that's the world that is becoming today. The world that is becoming is the unreal world and it's demanding every one of us who are committed to the real world to stop talking about the real world. Don't tell me about God. Don't tell me about God's word. Don't tell me about morality and ethics and protocol and boundaries and structure. Don't tell me about wisdom. Don't tell me about understanding. Don't tell me about right and wrong. See, all of those are part of the real world. The real world is filled with boundary structures, righteousness, consequences, fruit bearing. That's the real world. Would you agree with that? 
The real world is filled with order and hierarchy. The real world is filled with clear binaries between men and women, between parents and children, between authorities and subordinates. The real world is full of all kinds of these categories. The unreal world wants to get rid of all of these categories. Did you hear what I just stated? And I'm using the term unreal because this is a philosophical term that's rooted in an ideology that's been around for a long time. When you want to deceive a people, you get them to buy that the unreal is real and the real is unreal. That's what we're dealing with in the deconstruction of our society today. Am I making some sense? And what Paul is doing is laboring in a manner that constitutes his understanding of what really is real versus what is not real. And so what I'm going to try to help you uh, understand is that when we know what's real versus what is unreal, we'll actually live like what is real is the most important thing to us. Okay, so that's going to kind of um, come through here in a moment. And so look at verse 8. This is the next thing that we want to see in verse 8, 1 Corinthians 3. Now, he that planteth and he that watereth is what? Right, indistinguishable in terms of their essence. They are distinguishable in terms of their purpose, but in terms of their essence, what Paul says is, you can't divide me from Apollos. Now, you guys do understand that we are in the deconstruction age. Those of you who listen to me well, you do understand that a neo-Marxist culture is about tearing everything down. So it loves to subdivide into categories because when you divide, you can conquer. So what Paul is saying is, you're not going to divide me from Apollos. You're not going to sneak up on me and tell me something bad about Apollos. You're not going to get me to buy your gossip. You're not going to get me to buy your angst. Me and Apollos are one. Did that make some sense? We, we are one. So you might as, just like, just like a husband and a wife are supposed to be one, supposed to, me and Apollos are one. You're not gonna, you're not gonna divide us because we are part of the body and that body is one body. That's what he argued back in chapter one. Is Christ divided? Did, did Apollos or Paul or Peter die for you? Are you baptized in the name of Paul? That's called division, right? This is what Paul is tearing down. Give you another part of division before I go on. E Ephesians chapter four, verse one. I'm going to walk through this and I'm not going to unpack it. I just want you to see a hierarchy of vision, a, a top down understanding of how people who see the world the right way live. Here's what the apostle says to the church at Ephesus. I therefore, the prisoner or slave of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you have been called. Verse two, let's walk it through. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering and forbearing one another in love. These are the attributions to which the believer in his walk with God walks with one another. Right. He, he's telling us to re remain very lowly in our attitude. Go back to verse one, because I, I just got a feeling y'all didn't catch it. Uh, verse two, verse two. This is how you are supposed to walk with all lowliness and meekness. You guys get that? What a category. Didn't he just demonstrate that in first Corinthians chapter three? I am nothing. Apollos is nothing. But God who gives the increase. That's called lowliness and meekness. He came home, didn't it? Right. Now watch this. And with long suffering, that word is epithumia. And it's the metaphor of the temperature gauge. Uh, every one of us have one. 
And some of us are what are called hot tempered and others of us are cold tempered. And some of us are fast tempered and other of us, uh, others of us move up really slow. A slow tempered person is a mature person. Here's a better word to put, controlled. Because when you are under control there, that indicates maturity. Some of us get hot quick. Does that make sense? Then you, you need to actually put a governor on that mechanism of passion and that mechanism of feeling. Because getting hot too quick doesn't help anybody. Right? And so when we talk about lowliness and meekness with long suffering, what that means is because we're very conscious of the um, limited significance of our presence in person in any given situation like I'm not all that everybody does not have to run and cower at how I feel about a thing there are some people who feel like whenever they come into the space of other people everybody has to be concerned about how they feel have you ever met that person just putting it out there all right and 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 and, and if that person has a gloomy day everybody got to have a gloomy day and it's a sin if they have a gloomy day and you're happy. Why are you happy? I'm not. Right? And that's a bad thing in a family and in a church. Because that is tyrannical. It is a, it is a compensatory action that says I want to control the whole environment as the central thermometer in the room. And if I'm hot, I want everybody else hot. Like nobody should have their own thermometer. Do you get the analogy? So when a believer is long suffering, when a believer is long suffering, what the believer recognizes is this. They have the capacity for tempering the room by their ability to not engage in speedy, heated, passionate expression. They can warm the room up and they can cool the room down. That's called being long suffering. In fact, that is an attribution of God. God is said to be long suffering, isn't he? That's how he revealed himself in Exodus 33, right? The Lord, the Lord God, the Lord God, long suffering and plenteous in mercy, right? That attribution should also be something that we bear about. And then he says that the long suffering forbearing one another in what? Agape. I love it. Forbearing. And the idea here of forbearing means to put up with each other. <clears throat> from a position of fullness, from a position of fullness. So remember at all times, agape always means that God is pouring into you in order that you can actually give people something out of the agape. Don't forget that because people, we're not getting these concepts. Agape is you being available to God, working in you and working through you. And, and you'll know it, too, because just to actually work this through a little bit more, because you and I are simultaneously righteous and sinful, the good things that work through us be, that are emitted and, and uh, become a blessing to others are the consequence of our yielding to God. They are not the consequence of us going out and developing intrinsic qualities in ourselves when we go around saying, I am love. Right. That's arrogant. It's pompous. It's delusional. You are not love. <clears throat> you may be a vehicle of love. You are not love. Did that make some sense? Right. And so when we actually see that love flow through us to other people, 
it often is accompanied by a small measure of internal conflict. That small measure of internal conflict is the natural ego of self-preservation that would rather be on the receiving end rather than the giving end. Did that come home? Right, so I'm going back to the marriage class where I'm, I'm making a distinction between love and desire. Those tensions are in all of us. When you and I are choosing to actually agape, we are choosing to accept the conflict of desire while looking for the best in agape to show up in other people's lives. Again, did, did that make some sense or do I need to expand on that? Because if you're a parent with a child, you know what I'm talking about. As a parent with children, you forego your desires frequently in order to facilitate them in things they want. So this is what I mean by living with the conflict of the simultaneity of righteous and sinful. Did that make some sense? <clears throat> you got to get good at that. You got to get good at living with that conflict because if you can get good at living with that conflict, you can know that there is a reward for you later on down the line. Now, that is not the attitude of a child. The attitude of a child is I want it now. Uh, an adult knows that I don't always get to get or have what I want now. So I am going to choose to yield to the presence of God's fullness to work through me to be a blessing to other people. Came home, didn't it? Right. And so this is what Paul is saying. Now, look at verse four, because now what he's getting ready to talk about is the next level up. Verse three, rather. Endeavoring to keep the what? The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, is Paul talking about the same thing that he's struggling with in first Corinthians? In first Corinthians, they're all divided. Paul is saying this is about unity in the body of Christ. Well, it is because Paul understands the hierarchy. He understands what I'm getting ready to, you know, impose upon you, something you already know. Paul knows that the reason for which he's in the Christian community is that God has brought him into a kingdom of peace. It's a kingdom of righteousness. It's a kingdom of joy. So righteousness, peace and joy, Romans 17, 14, become qualities that um, that motivate us to maintain a peaceful environment among those who are called the people of God. Righteousness, peace, and joy. When I'm living in a state of righteousness where I'm right with God, and that's grace, and I'm at peace because I'm right with God, which is grace, and, and often there will be an overflow, particularly if my vision is animated. That's what I'm going to already talk about now. When a vision is animated, when you have an animated vision, you live out of joy because joy is a byproduct of faith. When you can see something coming, when you can see something coming, you live in joyous expectation of it. That's what I mean by faith. When faith is vital, it is able to rejoice in hope. Right? Rejoice in hope. And hope is always a vision. Stay with me. Hope is always a vision. It's not it's not obscure. It's always a vision. Hope is able to leap over the veil of obscurity and see behind that veil promises and purposes. Again, if I just want to make sure I can secure you guys, particularly those of you who have been parents, you know what I'm saying. You, 
you raise kids and for a long time you are dealing with hopeful situations because often in so many cases there are these intermittent short dark bouts you're dealing with where you don't even know what the outcome is going to be with them and then you know in god's mercy it works out okay right and and you and i will go like this i, I wish that i had had more faith did that make sense right now here's the reason why because you know, when, when, the, when the situation transpires and the outcome is fine, what you and I are embarrassed about is how stupid we acted before the outcome. Like, like there was no God, you know, like I'm running the whole thing. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm bringing out all of the carnal, materialistic, selfish, psychological, rhetorical skill set. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a walking military apparatus trying to solve all these problems. And then I'm embarrassed afterwards because God was in control of the whole process. All right, so I'm going to leave that there. Because some of y'all ain't never, you, you haven't operated like that, but maybe God will give you one opportunity before you die to do so. And then it will help you understand what I'm getting at. Be, because it can happen where you can just find yourself so anxiously struggling with a situation that, you know, all stops are pulled and you're employing all of these different stupid um, methods to try to solve it. What the Apostle Paul is saying is we are called to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Verse four. Here's the reason why I want you to see the hierarchy, because there's one body. Do you see it? That's the reason why you labor for peace, because there's one body and there's what? One spirit. Now, the reason he uh, calls up the penuma next is because the body wouldn't be brought together as a unit without the spirit. The spirit is what brings the body together. Like here's the metaphor of the hypostasis, or what we call the incarnation. A body is dead without a what? Spirit. So if there's a manifestation, if there's an animated body present, it's because the spirit of God brought it together. I can use that. I can use what we're doing right now as a metaphor, Pat. This room has been brought together. You, you and I can't even imagine among us where we came from today and what we were thinking this morning and how God in the meticulousness of his providence made sure we came together. This is, again, remembering the body. Remember what I said about that. So we have had the body remembered one more time. And many of us know that this is never merely an accident. It's a work of the spirit of God, right? When men and women disperse from their homes in the course of a day and then make it back home, that was God's grace. You have to know that, right? And if you know it was God's grace when y'all left that morning and went your way and meandered through all these different business adventures and whatever else you were doing, and then you showed up in the same space, in the same house with the same person at the end of the day, that was grace, and, and you ought to be happy enough about it to make sure when you come in the house, you bring peace with you. Right. There's one body and one spirit, even as you have been called in one hope of your calling. Now, remember, hope is the fruit of faith. It's always vision oriented. It's always vision oriented. I'm, a, I'm getting ready to come to my vision in a moment. There's one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. We've been called to this. We've been called to this. Verse five. There's one Lord. Right. So so notice what we had early on. There's one body, the body of Christ. There's one spirit, 
the third person that has brought us together. There's one Lord. That's Jesus. Watch this. There's one faith. That's the gospel. We, we would have never known God apart from the gospel. The gospel was brought to us by Paul and Apollos. One sowed another water. But God gave the increase. It's the Holy Spirit that quickens that gospel and makes Christ a reality in our life. And he does that with all of us. And in, even in this room of sparse people in our class tonight, I can easily see a multitude of nations among us. We're not all coming from the same place, but we're all being drawn by the same God to comprehend the glory of the same Lord and to walk in the calling of the same hope. Right. Does that make some sense? Yeah, you're going to see what I'm saying here in a moment. One faith, that is the doctrine of the gospel, and one baptism, this is called confession. We'll be having a men's baptism on Father's Day, so pray for that. Um, we'll be baptizing our men on that day. We'll find another day to baptize the women, but this is the brother's time. So this time is going to be on Father's Day. Just So, ladies, remember, y'all not in the deconstruction. Y'all y'all in the reconstruction. So don't get mad about wanting to be baptized on the Father's Day, okay? That's for the brothers, all right, y'all sisters. Now, we're very clear on that, right? We're very clear. We'll have a sister's baptism down the line, okay? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. What is baptism? We are all confessing that we're one in Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, notice what it goes on to say. I want to get to my point. And here it is, one God and Father of, up, of all. Do you see it? Now, whether you know it or not, I just want you to see the vision here the way Paul started it was from the ground up. He started with the church, the body, didn't he? And then he went from the body to the spirit. Well, who do we call the spirit? The third person. Then he went from the spirit to the Lord. Who is the Lord? The second person. And now he's where? At the father. Do you guys see the hierarchy? Can you see the hierarchy? He started from the ground all the way up. Now, this is important. This is important. What he's saying by inference is to get to the father, men have to go through the body. Did y'all get that? That really is the point that I want to make here. And then I want to I want to press into Paul's optic because I'm with Paul. We want men to get to the father. Who is above all. And through all and in you all. So actually, he's not talking about everybody. Because the father is above, we call him Cardinal One. I just want you to get the vision. I know it's far away for a lot of you, but notice this. Because he is one, he is also one with the son. He's one with the spirit and he's one with us. This makes us all one. That's the way I pray every time I pray. Do you know that? When I say that Christ is our righteousness and I say that this is immutable, unchangeable, irrevocable. I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. And I said in the plural form, we're in Christ and Christ is in us. And Father, we're in you and you're in us. And if Jesus said in John 10, 20, 10, 30, rather, I and the Father are one, what does that make us? It makes us one. So this is a doctrine of oneness. That makes sense, right? So this doctrine of oneness is really interesting because what Paul is teaching is the oneness, our aboveness and fullness of the Father is only experienced by the ministry of the body called what? The church. Did that come home? Now think about that for a moment. Think about you 
being an instrument by which heaven opens up and people have access to the Father. Did that make some sense? Right. Just think about that because it's true. And that's why Paul is putting in all this energy that he's doing to the Corinthians because they're messing it up. They want to dismember the body and segregate it into all kinds of different spaces, which would completely demolish the matriculation up to the father. If you don't keep the body unified, then that's an indication that the body is dead. Which is dismembered, it means the spirit of God is not there. Does that make some sense? All right, we know that. So, very good. The hierarchy here is so extremely important. So now going back to 1 Corinthians 3, and let me make my way to verse 9, and then I'm going to tell you why I think Paul is excited about what he's saying, even though he has to warn us about it, because he's dealing with uh, what we would call weather patterns. I'm going to use that as a metaphor. Weather patterns. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 8. 3, 8. Start at 8, and I'll work my way through 9. Now, he that planted and he that watereth are what? One. Why? Because they are one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. That came on, right? That's what makes us one. That's what Jesus said in John 17. Father, I will that those that you have given me be with me where I am, that they also may behold my glory and be a partaker of you and I. That's the whole point. The whole point of Jesus. Now look at verse 9. Oh, I'm sorry. Stay there. Stay there back at verse 8. I need to do this because I know what Paul is about to do. Now he that plants and he that waters are one, and every man shall receive his own what? According to his own what? All right. So now what he just did, and I need to share it with you because I want you to get it. Now what he just did was a caveat from the body as a whole to every person in that body who is occupying the position of a laborer as he and Apollos is. So he's talking to the body as a whole about him and Apollos. Now he's talking to the particular people in the body who are saying that they are like Paul and Apollos, but their conduct is different than Paul and Apollos's. He's actually warning those other men and women about behaving in such a way that they are the central point of focus so that they become the grounds of division in that very same body that should be unified. They're making too much of themselves. Did that make some sense? And here's what he's saying. I want you to get it. If you follow the order that we operate out of, says Paul, and he's speaking for Paulus, he says, every man shall receive his own reward. Is that true? Right, so this is what I want you to capture. And I want you to keep a screen split. I want you to have two screens. I want you to think of the body of Christ in general. That would mean you and, and me. But more particularly, the ministers of the gospel. You need to know that. What Paul is dealing with here are people who have come into the church saying that they are apostles like Paul and preachers like Apollos and pastors like Cephas and what have you, but they're better than these men. These other men are better than Paul, better than Apollos, better than Cephas. That's what I'm getting now. You're hearing me? And, and, and because they are saying that, they're drawing people to themselves. And by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, the second letter, Paul will be challenging them. Will he not? 
He'll be calling them false apostles and false prophets and false teachers and telling them that they do not have the power and authority of apostles. We do. And he'll be warning. I'm on my way there. And when I come there, I'm going to mean business. OK, so this that's the end of the letter. You and I are just dealing with it up front. So if you were the audience in Corinth, what you would be doing in your head is you'd be going, OK, who am I with? Paul or with these other uh, sophists who come in with all of these great words and and all of these shenanigans and and all of these mystical manifestations. Who am I with? Those who are with the Lord or these other hucksters. That, that makes sense, right? That's the church of our day. It's the church of our day. What Paul said is every one of us is going to receive a reward. So here's what I want you to visualize. This would be Matthew. I haven't been there in a long time. Matthew 16, 27, maybe. I'm going to guess. Uh, right, because I have the verse in my head. Maybe it'll pop up and, and serve me. Uh, Matthew uh, 16, 27, if you can find it. Probably not. Um, anyhow, this is what Jesus says in the text. He says, I'm coming and my reward is with me to give unto every man according as his work shall be. That is, Ivy, you all right up there? Okay. For the son of man shall come in the glory of his father with his angels. That's going to be a beautiful, glorious day for some of us. But for a lot of us, it won't be. And the reason it won't be is because there are two camps in our world, the people that are tearing down. And the people that are building up. You guys keeping up with me? So if we're living without vision, we will be compelled to be part of the people that tear down. If we're living with vision, we will be motivated to be part of the people that are building up. Now, both of them are working simultaneously at the same time. The parable of the sword and the seed lets us know this good seed, bad seed. Wheat and tares. The servant said, let's separate them, Lord. And God says, no. You separate the wheat and the tare, you're going to rip up both of them. This is part of the tribulation of living in this world. Politics wants to separate. God wants us to distinguish. Did that make some sense? See, politics wants to separate, put you in categories, and they're going to always get it wrong. They're going to save the wicked and destroy the righteous. And so you and I are not given to politics like that because we already been part of that. That's dumb. It doesn't work. Men and women are blind to who knows the heart. God knows the heart. Does he know the heart? Let them grow together. Ah, now you and I have to walk in lowliness and humility and long suffering and patience because both the wheats and the tare is growing together. Did that make some sense, saints? So you got to learn how to be comfortable living right up against a tear. God uses tears to develop you. Doesn't he? Because, you know, we often pray, Lord, get rid of him. Get rid of her. Get rid of them. I can't stand it. And God just lets him keep growing right on, right on next to you. And, and you, you're thinking God's not listening to you. He hears you. But you're not praying according to his will. You just want to be liberated from the process of growth that's necessary. Because you're not going to grow as much at all without the tears in your life. 
All right, let me keep going because I, I want you to capture this. Then he shall reward every man according to his what? All right, please get this. This is a binary. It's important. When you're done, every one of us, when we're done, we all have works. And we're going to be standing before Christ, every one of us, with our works. That's what he says. You can run, but you can't hide. A lot of people don't like this doctrine. I do not care. It doesn't make any difference whether we like it or not. It's so. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight. I'm almost at the vision. I do not care. It makes all the sense in the world that God would save me, grace me, call me and use me and then obligate me to make sure that I'm not acting a fool in his business. Did that make some sense? Hold on. It makes all the sense in the world that God would call me and employ me and not leave me idle like he did when I was lost and unsaved. But once he brings me into his kingdom plan and says, now, Jesse, you got to get it right, partner, because you got to meet me at the end of the day. At the end of the work day, you got to meet me and you got to lay out your labors and you got to reckon with me. That makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Makes all the sense in the world. Listen to it. We are confident, I say, willing rather to be absent from the body. Are you? Well, now, if you and I have the mindset that Paul taught us already about one watering, another sowing, they're nothing, but God is the one that gives the increase, then you can be confident that if you die, it's going to be cool. Because they're building up. But if you're tearing down, there's no joy in dying and going to be with the Lord. Does that? Am I keeping it simple? I know it's Tuesday. Listen, we are confident, I say, willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That's a memory verse. That is a memory verse. That's a memory verse. You want to be able to get to a place of going, I'd rather be with the Lord. That is a memory verse. Now, most of us don't walk with that because we're still trying to find our shovels and picks and holes and water hoses to get about the work that God is calling us to. We're not even laboring like we should. And to be present with the Lord. See it? So if I'm if I if I'm very clear on the vision, I'm going to paint it in a, in a moment. If I'm very clear on the vision and if God has compelled me by the vision and if I have if I have been able to um, identify myself in relationship to the vision, then what I can say sincerely is to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. If I drop dead right now. No equivocation, no fear, no fright, no regrets. But I'd have all of that if I were playing games with the eschaton. If I were pretending that I'm not going to see Jesus, I, I could play games, which is what a lot of Christians do. Am I making some sense? Right. This is what I meant by also operating out of hope. This little vision is going to help you in a moment. Y'all going to see what I'm saying. I'm preserving the last 15 minutes for a vision here. Because I get what Paul is saying. Verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Wherefore we what? Wherefore we what? Toil to exhaustion. He labors because he knows to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's all right, because while he is absent from the Lord and present in the body, for me to live is Christ. Did that make some sense? 
So, so while the Holy Spirit hasn't separated my spirit from my body, my purpose here is to live for Christ. See it? It makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Watch this. Wherefore we labor that whether we are present or absent, it don't make no difference. I want to be in a position where I'm accepted one way or the other. Now, this is really a beautiful insight on a psychological level, because I know that there are some of us in here who really labor with meaning and purpose in our life. And we should always be working through that. Christians should know how to navigate the difficult conversation of what it means to live a meaningful life. We should. I should stop right here and keep moving because I'm always thinking about young people. I'm always thinking about young people because I was young yesterday. I was 18 years old. I was 18 years old when God called me out of darkness. 18. That was yesterday. I couldn't have even conceived of what it means to be almost 63 years old. I thought by the time you're 63, you're already going to heaven. 18 years old, the, 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 the numbers are vast, are they not? Like vast, you know, from 18 to 30, you old at 30, right? Here we are, I'm 60, going on 63. And the time has flown. And I'm so glad that God put his hand on me because if I, if I think about what happened the day he called me by his grace, and I think about all of the years that I've gone through, all of the stuff that I've gone through, and I am looking at this very moment right now where I am still doing what God has called me to do today. It means I took seeing him on that day serious up to this point. Did that make some sense? Right. And these words are meaningful to me because... I have to do what Paul is trying to do, pass the baton down to these young people and help them understand meaning. Because that's what they're struggling with. I don't care what you say, they're struggling with what is meaning? What is this life about? That's what they're struggling with. And a lot of times those of us who are up on the rung of historical experience don't know how to have that conversation with them. And then they're perusing into all kind of other very bad paths to try to get the answers. And Christians ought to know the answers. All right, let me go on. Notice what it says in verse 10. For we must all, what? Appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Do you see it? In order that every one of us may receive the things done in his stop. See this thing here, which we all got? Every one of us has a living body right here. This is the thing that will do good or bad down here that will determine what kind of conversation we're going to have with him then. It's all in the body. It's all right here. All of it is right here. Did you get what I just stated? All of it is right here. Remember I talked about the one body? Remember what I said? The assumption is that there's a spirit, right? The assumption is that there's a Lord, right? Assumption is that there's a faith, right? Assumption is that there's a father, right? Yeah, well, we're, the body is going to be meeting the Lord and the father on that day. Right, so this is the hierarchy of thinking right down here. In fact, this becomes the conversation you have with young people. What life is about 
is a hierarchy of principles that holds the father in maximal view in relationship to my choice making and how I live and what I do. Okay, so here we go. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that which he has done, whether it be what? Good or bad. That sounds like your parables, right? The parables of accountability. That's exactly what it sounds like. And it's appointed unto men once to die. And after that, what? The judgment. The world does not want to hear that. Another conversation. I got 10 minutes. Now, I want to go back to uh, 1 Corinthians 3. And I want to look at verse 9. And then I want to show you the vision that I think Paul is operating out of. I just want to put that in your head. So on Friday, we can unpack this some more. Paul says in verse 9, For we are laborers together with God. See it? Is that what your Bible says? Right. Literally, the word laborer there is co-laborers. So the conjunction laborers together, laborer is the verb, together is the modifier verb. We are laborers together, not just on a horizontal plane between Paul and Apollos, but vertically with God. We are laborers together with God. We are laborers together with God. Laborers, we, plural form, together, that's your conjunction, with God. That's a great model to think about as well. That's a great model to think about. That totally corresponds then with what we've been stating earlier, right? To, to, um, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? So whether I live or whether I die, I want to be accepted with God. Well, it totally comports that if down here we are co-laboring together with God, that's going to make that other promise very viable, right? So here's what I want you to think about as I get ready to paint the, pitch, paint the vision, because that's the verse that I'm landing on to create for you an optic of what Paul is doing. You and I daily want to know that we are co-laboring together with God. Daily. That's what you want to know. Don't lose your mind. Slow the clock down, Lord. Because we, we, we're so distracted by so many things, first of all. So distracted by so many things. Lord, help, help my people get this. And the one area in which I want you to not be lost is in not being able to see where you have indeed been called into the labor. Right, so this, again, this is, this is when we are not operating at a vital vision level. This is when the clouds have come over our head and meaning gets lost. And we wake up despondent and wake up confused and wake up disoriented and wake up backwards. Did that make some sense? The cloud is over your head. It's descended on you. Its job is to put you into a space of dubiousness and doubt. That's James chapter one. All right. Now, when the cloud is dissipated and the sun is shining brightly on you and all of your neurons are firing at the highest level of oxygen, mitochondrial fullness and efficacy, you think bright, you think clear, you think objective, you think comprehensively. And then you realize I am co-laboring together with God because I am a man of God. I am a woman of God. 
I am a mother of God. I am a father of God. I am a parent of God. I am laboring with eternity bound souls. I am a young man for God. I am a young woman for God. I am working for God's glory. I am part of the kingdom of God. I engage in the ministry of the church across all of that and more. Am I making some sense? And many other areas that we could we could easily attach our calling to for which we would say, I am co-laboring together with God. Teachers, doctors, lawyers, scientists, therapists, you just name it. I am co-laboring together with God. Does that make some sense? I'm co-laboring together with God because God has called us into all those dimensions. He, he is only going to get there through you and me. Makes sense, doesn't it? But you see how easily we can disassociate the vertical correlation between us and God and bring uh, substantial meaning to my life in all of those different categories. We can also be forgetful of it and lose meaning. Does that make sense? You don't want to lose. You don't want to be forgetful that God has called you into situations that you are in now by his mercy and goodness and act like he didn't call you to it. Because there are people who are idle sitting on the sideline doing none of these things. There are, there are people who are idle sitting on the sideline who don't even have a mind that's able to think about God. A heart to be passionate for God. A ministry to be involved in for God's glory. A community to be a part of for the glory of God. A family across the horizontal, a family on the vertical, a family on the missional. And then things to do every day that are ex extremely important to God. Did that make some sense? Right, very much so. Right. So now. He says, well, we are co-laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. Literally in the Greek is cultivated field. Imagine a field of wheat or a field of corn. And imagine that field of corn growing and the blade and the stock and the kernels and the corn developing. And, and let that field be as large or small as you want. One acre, 10 acres, 100 acres. Does that make some sense? It was cultivated. It didn't grow on its own. God sent laborers out into the field. Paul said him and Apollos were one of them. Did that come home? So you and I. Would you, would you agree with that? So you and I. So, so you and I. So, so imagine, I guess I'll have to do this. I think I'm going to wait till Friday. Imagine you being called into a field to cultivate it. And God gives you a sack of corn because he wants corn in the field that he's putting you in. He puts a sack on your back. Psalm 128, right? They that go forth weeping, bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again, rejoicing, bearing their sheaves with them. You got seed and you go out and you got to do what? Sow that seed. In the Greek, it's called broadcasting. It's a metaphor for sharing the good seed of the gospel. Did that come home? Sharing the good seed of God. Every day we get to sow that seed. Now, it can be in conjunction with a job, with a task at home, 
with the freedom because you may be in a retirement mode where you can just go about exercising, what have you, but you get to open your mouth every day and scatter some seed because you're co-laboring together with God because you have vision. Did that make some sense? You got vision. You're not blind. You're not ignorant. There's meaning to your life. There's meaning to your life. Your, your life is not meaningless. And, and if God has like blessed you with certain things that other people haven't been blessed with, like long tenures, a mother has a minimum of a 20 year job with God. A father has a 20 year job. Today is about 30 years now. I just, just... Did you hear what I just stated? You have all those years to sow. You have all those years to sow and, and in so many different ways. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry and you are God's building. Do you see that? This is the, this here's the binary again. I taught, taught this to you in the marriage class. I said that in the marriage class that the husband and the wife and the family represent a house. Did I say that? Matthew chapter seven, right? House built on a rock. Versus a house built on sand. Then I actually described that house as something much more majestic and much more reverential. Who knows what that was? What's the word? What's the word? Do you do you believe what you're saying? Say it again. It's a temple. It's a temple. That's a temple. You guys got that? Now, there's something proceeding out of this temple. Now, some people know what this is. This is a river flowing out of the what? Where is it flowing out of? According to my vision, right? Now, do you guys know your Bible enough to know I'm being biblical? Right. And notice that this temple is, according to my statement, the apostle, the apostles downstream what vision. And that's because this is Paul and this is Apollos. I know you can't see it. It don't make no sense to you, but these are two brothers casting nets. <laughs> David went, <laughs> okay, okay. Ezekiel 47. Verse 10, Ezekiel 40, 17. I want you to hear it. I'm going to walk it through. Ezekiel 40, 17. This is called the downstream vision of the apostle. And every one of us should have a downstream vision. We should all have a downstream vision. I start at verse 7. I want you to see this. Now, when I have returned, this is Ezekiel. Behold, at the bank of the what? Where what? Very many what? Multiply this by 10. Only did two because I didn't have time to do 10. Do you see it? Multiply by 10. So first of all, what do we have here? We have water, right? Now we have here what? Trees. Do you see what vision is being painted? Do you guys already see the vision painted? So downstream of the temple and of the water and of the trees, downstream, you're getting ready to see, are the laborers. 
downstream. Right, look at how this goes. Now, when I returned, behold, at the bank of the river, there are many trees on the one side and on the other. Verse 8. Then said he unto me, these waters issue out toward the east country. Now, where are these waters coming from, saints? The temple. And they go down into the desert. They go down into the desert. So the waters are going somewhere where water is needed. Down into the desert. Right? So these are not aimless waters. These are meaningful waters. And they go down into the sea. Which being brought forth to the sea, the water shall be what? So these waters have healing efficacy to them. Healing efficacy. And they proceed from upstream. Right? Because this is upstream. The apostles are downstream, aren't they? They're downstream. They're downstream working. Because they actually know the vision. They actually already have the vision. They don't need to be up here. Because they actually know the source. They actually know the vision. They understand what's taking place. So what they're not being here is idle. They're not being idle. What are they doing? They're working. We are co-laborers together with who? With God. Do you see the vision? This is called a downstream vision. A downstream vision. And this is why Ezekiel's vision is so clear. Verse 9. Got to get done. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth which moves with the soever the river shall come shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of what? This is why they're casting nets, aren't they? They're casting nets because they want to actually mimic their Lord who said, follow me and I will make you what? Do you see the vision now? Do you see the vision now? This is not hard. You see the vision now. But notice, they're not up here. They don't need to be up here. All they need to do is have the vision. Because see, if you have the vision, you live out of that vision. Your vision is your meaning. You see how they're living? The Apostle Paul and Apollos are living in relationship to what they know the temple means. Didn't I tell you verse 16 and 17 is about the temple? And what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, which is supposed to be the temple of God. Hey, you guys, the ministers you guys are listening to, they don't have any vision. Because if they had vision, they would know the source. They would know the resources. They would know what the vision looks like. They would know its aim. They would know its purpose. And they would know their role in it. Makes sense, doesn't it? Right. Very important. Very important. One little last thing I'll say, and then we'll come back on Friday. He says here, for they shall be healed and everything shall live, whether the river what? Right. Wherever the river comes, it shall live. Now, why would fishermen cast nets in a river they don't believe will have any living thing in it? Did that make some sense? Right. So Paul and Apollos are laboring by faith. Because they have a vision and they know that vision is real. They are laboring downstream because of a vision that they know upstream is the cause of all of the hope and promises and reality of what they are doing. That makes some sense, right? That's, that makes some sense. It's so extremely important. So I'm not going to touch this until Friday because I want to show you what that is. Okay? If you're smart, you'll know.
I, I, I want to show you what this is. So here we have the labor. Here we could actually even call this, I'm, I'm done here. Here we can actually call this what we say in theology is, ah, not, not working, I'll use this one. We could actually call this whole line here. Y'all ready? We could call this history. We can call this history. Right? Or as we have said it before, his story. Theologically, we call this teleos. <clears throat> Literally, teleos means purpose. Purpose to finish. Purpose to complete. That's called vision. Y'all got that? That's called vision. These men are living based on a vision way upstream and they're laboring downstream, right? They actually know the relationship between this and this. Y'all got that? They know what this is. You should know what this is too. And you'll know that when you actually are able to operate out of the upstream vision, you are clear on the end game. And, and, every, and, and God will know who is is that understands the vision. He will know because they'll act like it. They'll live out of this. All right, we're going to stop right here.